Support for this podcast comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to policyholders who focus on keeping their employees safe. More at TexasMutual.com. Stuart Allen is a working artist in San Antonio, Texas, or maybe better said, a businessman artist. In his art, Stuart primarily focuses on the intersection of light, color, and movement. But for me, he's my go-to for a discussion about the intersection of money and art. Stuart is roughly my age, which is middle age, and that means he has survived some decades on the business side of being an artist and has spent quite a bit of time thinking about the problems of other artists who do not understand the business and finance side of what they do. Stuart, in fact, has taught a course to aspiring artists in the business of art, and I want to know what he told his students. I want to know what also did he learn himself in the course of teaching would-be artists. This is No Hill for a Climber from Texas Public Radio. I'm Michael Taylor. Hey, Stuart, welcome. Instead of a string of titles and positions held, the nature of being an artist is that titles wouldn't tell us much of anything. How do you describe your work? I Thanks for the opportunity, by the way. It's good to hear from you, Mike, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. It's a topic that's very near and dear to me. I think that the art world is woefully short on business instruction, and people have the idea that we're all in our studios eating baguettes and drinking red wine all day, and it's, um, <laughs> it's nice to have a format where we can talk about the reality of it. It took me a long time to be willing to call myself an artist. I felt like I had to actually be making a living before I applied that title to myself. So actually, I take the title artist quite seriously. How do you describe your work visually? Well, I work in a variety of of media. Photography has been a consistent medium since I was in my 20s. And my photographs are typically fairly abstract. They, They typically work themselves out in series. The most recent series of photographs is a series of uh, soap bubbles floating in the sky. I just want to say we have a piece of your art and it's awesome. That's what I can see on my daily trip up and down my stairs because your bubble is right there. It's gorgeous. Well, it brings a smile to my face. To I like very much the idea of somebody having a, a piece in the regular kind of circulation of their day and, and revisiting it. And that's that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that with me. So professional development-wise, you didn't go to school to get a degree in this, but you did study concepts and techniques adjacent to this. Can you tell me about going to school? Well, I studied architecture first. I was in architecture school for three and a half years, and then I transferred to a smaller private art school in Kansas City, the Kansas City Art Institute. And some opportunities started to come my way and I, the path was kind of there. It sort of looked like, oh, wait, there, there might be a way for this to work, um, actually be a studio artist. And, but I was very skeptical and you know, remained skeptical for 10 years that it was really going to work. Some years I'm still a little skeptical, although at this point it feels like, no, this is, you know, there's, <laughs> there's enough years under my belt that I believe this is actually my career now. When did you first get paid? The first real paycheck that I got where I felt like, oh, wow, this really could work, was a commission. It was a funny story, actually. I was in a show 
in San Francisco that I was kind of reluctant to be in. It was a show that I, I was kind of suspect of the, of, of the peers that I was going to be showing with. It was a kite exhibition. And I do have a, a longstanding interest in kites and I make a lot of kites, but this show felt like, oh man, there could be some really kind of uh, hokey kites in this show if I'm not careful. Well, it turned out that I was, number one, I was wrong about the show. It was actually a pretty good show. But number two, there was an art consultant that happened to work in the same building, which was the Transamerica Tower in San Francisco. And that art consultant saw the pieces that I'd placed in that show and contacted me about a commission opportunity. Well, long story short, I was selected based on the material that I provided. And at that point, they said, oh, it's for the U.S. Embassy in Ottawa. That commission was the first time where my pay was enough for me to really open my eyes and say, okay, this could be this could be legit. Like I could make this work. And that money ended up being kind of the seed money for the first studio that I built. And financially speaking, that was my first kind of big break. That's your first break. Okay. And did the money feel like this is more than I ever imagined or did it feel like, ah, I deserve this? Or like, what's your thought about that when you get, when you actually get paid? It felt like I deserved it. I worked very hard for the commission. It was a piece that I'm still quite proud of actually. Um, It also felt like the first time that I thought the numbers would truly add up. I'm also a numbers guy, and I'm uh, fiscally conservative. With <laughs> it's the generous way to put it. My my ex wife may choose different words, <laughs> but would she call you cheap, Stuart? She would call me cheap, <laughs> and we'd okay. you know we'd have a decent laugh over it. But but it was the first time where I felt like oh this could actually work. This you know I could make enough money to to have health insurance and to have a decent place to live. And, you know, th- this doesn't have to look like a completely bare bones existence. If I can pull off a couple of these, you know, one of these a year or something like that, then it, this, oh, this could actually start to add up. Sounds like the key lesson here is make sure you sell to the U.S. Embassy. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. The key lesson is to keep putting work out there even when you're not completely sure that, it's going to go somewhere. You know, and I think that's probably true for a lot of business people, right? You 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 keep uh, I'm feeling that myself as somebody who writes things, I'm like, with this am I why am I doing this? Yeah. And then you and then you find out the unexpected thing happens, you go, "Oh, that's why I did it." No one noticed the other nine things, but And the things that you think are are going to be home runs aren't. And the things that are end up being kind of happy accidents come out of the blue, right? And so I think that the key is that you're you're consistently working, number one, you get up every day and you work. And number two, you, you get that work out into the public spectrum. Nobody's going to see it in your studio. The counterfactual I had in mind is if that break doesn't happen, is your working life totally different? Or in fact, you're saying the opposite, just keep working and it will happen. The opposite. I think that if that break doesn't happen, some other break happens as long as, as, long as you're diligent, as long as you're working hard. And of course, the work has to be decent. I mean, I'm not suggesting that any artist, songwriter, poet will be met with success no matter what, as long as they get up every day and work. I think that the work has to be of a certain caliber. But I'm more and more convinced that the work ethic is equally important, if not more important. So there are times when the finances of being an artist just felt impossible. Like, ah, I've got to go to plan B. I've got to go to plan C. I've got to go to plan D. Yes, especially as a younger artist, when you work for six months on a new body of work and get it into the gallery and, and you're convinced that, it's, that it has legs both critically and in terms of like a market 
and then it just doesn't. Certainly there were times where I felt like, wow, I just invested you know, six months to a year on this new body of work, I've spent a ton of money and time framing everything and getting it delivered and getting it installed and just nothing. I got like a couple thousand dollars back, you know, and it's just like, Jesus, that is terrible. So what was the plan B or what has been the plan B at various times? Teaching some courses was fairly easy. I didn't really ever want to teach full time though. And it was kind of one of the things that did and still offends me about art school in the U.S. in particular is that the the path that is shown to young artists is go get your degree, then go get a master's degree, then go get a teaching job because that's the only way you're ever going to make a living. And that's kind of the story that's told to art students. And I think it's a real disservice to our art world here in the U.S. I think there are other ways to do it and they should be highlighted. So that sounds like some of that feeling inspired you or forced you to eat your own cooking and actually teach that course to art students. Can you encapsulate the cliff notes for that course? The main thing that I think I tried to emphasize is that you can't romanticize this small business that you're running. It is a small business, period. If you don't treat it like that, you, you're going to fail. You know, If you don't treat your artwork like inventory in the same way that a restaurant would treat ingredients, keep them in the refrigerator, don't buy too much, use them at an appropriate scale. If you don't think of your studio as a, a small business where you're trying to seek efficiencies, it's not going to work. You have to get past the romanticization of making art. You have that part of it, and you've got to lean into the creativity, and you've got to lean into your ideas for sure. That's a big piece. But you've also got to be doing this other thing in parallel. So how do they, how do they react? Do they believe you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they believe me. And I think largely they believe me because I'm coming from outside of academia. Yeah. And, they, and they're able to look at my website and say, oh, wow, he actually makes artwork for a living. Like, we don't know very many people that make artwork for a living. That's crazy. <laughs> we know art teachers. We don't know working <laughs> artists. Yeah. Well, that's right. And, and that's the part that I criticize about the, about the higher education system in, in the arts is that, and I, I, you know, some of my closest friends are, are art professors, so don't get me wrong. It's a, it's a completely viable and interesting profession to teach art at a college level. But unfortunately, a lot of the art professors that I know their fiscal well-being is based on their on their salary, not on their artwork. Right. And so it's a very different conversation. It's a hugely different it's not, approach to the world, right. It it is. And and they're and they're, and it also translates to the work they're making. And so the the kinds of conversations about artwork that are happening in art school, if they're centered on the professor's work, are are going to be different than the kinds of conversations that you're going to have with full-time studio artists because there's different fiscal pressures on these yeah. on these professionals. As somebody who taught personal finance at Trinity, uh, let me ask this. I learned a lot teaching undergrads about finance. What did you learn teaching art students about the business of art? Oh, it was a really great experience for me because it forced me to clean up my act a little bit. For, for example, it's pretty important that you have a database of where all the work is. You know, who, who owns what? Where does it go when you send it to the gallery? Because unfortunately, galleries sometimes lose things or damage things, and you need to have a record of what they, what they have. Sometimes they forget to pay you, and mm-hmm. you need to know what, what they still have in their, 
in their storeroom and what the, or what maybe they sold and forgot to send you a check for. And, and so in the database section of my professional practices course, it, it forced my hand to really clean up my database. <laughs> and there were a lot of examples like that where I was thinking, you know what, this is, uh, I've been a little loose on this mm-hmm. front. I need, to, I need to tighten up my game here. Every business needs an accounts receivable department, and you had not, but you'd been neglecting your accounts receivable. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. After that, we'll get into some of the biggest mistakes of Stewart's career. Last summer, Texas Mutual sent $330 million to resilient companies who work hard at working safe. It's their 23rd consecutive year of distributing dividends and helping businesses invest in a bright future. Since 1999, they've paid out more than $3.4 billion to employers who share their commitment to building a stronger, safer Texas. Learn more about how Texas Mutual is changing the way workers' comp works for you at texasmutual.com rewarding. Can we talk about major business mistakes or hard lessons? Like if you had one scary story to tell an aspiring artist, a cautionary tale, what would you tell them? One in particular involved a lot of LED light technology and a custom-engineered piece of computer hardware that was driving this whole thing. It was a project in a, in a corporate office lobby where I placed a, a light sensor on the roof of the building that measured the the color of the daylight, and relayed that information to a server. And then that server relayed the information to this array of LED lights, and they changed color based on what was happening with the sky at any given moment. Okay. sounded simple enough on on paper, but it ended up being (laughs) really complicated. And the the project was fabulous for about three months. (laughs) And And then the the lights started to fade and the LEDs started to fail. And we still really don't know why, but the short version of a long story is that, you know, I had had to rebuild that piece and kind of on my own dime because I wasn't, it was not okay that it had such a short life. So there was one, I think, where I could have done a little more R&D up front before pitching the idea. I mean, I'm a believer in taking risks. And I think on that case, it just kind of bit me in the ass a little bit. You know, it took that risk was just maybe a little too great in terms of the technology side of things. It sounds like in a, in a broader sense, uh, the kind of new technology, unproven technology, hard lesson is what hit you. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that's put that way. I think that could apply to a lot of small businesses, right? They overinvest in a certain technological pathway and turns out that was the wrong choice. And you don't even realize that you're making that choice right at the beginning, you know? Yeah. And then, and then you're kind of too deep to back out of it. So You're working on the limits of innovation and unproven technology, and then it's just, um, yeah, three times as much expense and twice the time, and, yeah. and there goes your profit for the year. How does your financial reality differ from what you expected 20, 30 years ago starting out? I'm really like, sur- are, are you making more than you thought or, or less? I'm making more than I thought, and I'm really surprised, okay. honestly. Like, I'm, I'm truly surprised that this has worked. I mean, in a good way. I, 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 it's one of the things that I feel sort of most fortunate about and, and most proud of is that, oh, wow, this is, this is so cool. And I've been fortunate. I, you know, I, had, I, had a, I grew up with a great family that was supportive and saved money to send me to college. And there were a lot of things that, you know, that I, uh, there were a lot of advantages that I had right out of the gate. My ex-wife was always supportive of me and, and, she had a kind of a regular job with benefits, and that helped tremendously, especially in the early years. 
Leaving right, so. aside the issue of whether your ex-wife thinks you're really cheap, uh, <laughs> without comment, uh, <laughs> but you have a real aversion to the with the myth of the starving artist. Do you, why does this persist with the, the starving artist myth? I think what you were trying to address in your course with your students, or maybe just in your life. Yeah, I I do have a really strong aversion to it. Number one, you're right. Um, I think that it implies a sense of hopelessness or haplessness that I don't subscribe to. And, and I, and I think that artists need to own their professional lives in a more tangible way. You know, I think that if you enter into it with the idea that you're going to be a suffering, starving artist, you probably will. And, and I think that if you enter into it with the idea that I value my work, I know what it's worth, I'm going to price it, in such a way that it's you know commensurate with the amount of work that I've put into it, and I'm going to be diligent and work hard at it. I think that you make your own, you know, you make your own reality. And I'm not trying to be flip, and I'm also not suggesting that it's easy, because it's not. It's quite hard, but so are a lot of other jobs. You know, being an artist isn't the only hard job out there. You know, ask any restaurateur how hard they've worked to run a successful restaurant. That's another industry where people tend to romanticize it a little bit. Like, oh, I'd love to own a, a cafe. Wouldn't that be lovely? Well, not really. <laughs> You're going to be tied to it every day for as long as it's open, you know? And, and, and yeah, there are going to be moments within that day that are quite beautiful. But is it, is it romantic? No. It's going to be hell on wheels a lot of the time. I got maybe two final questions. Are there things you wish you understood better about business and money that you have not yet figured out? Yes. Uh, because I'm reluctant to be in debt, I've never been very good at, at borrowing money, even when I've had an opportunity to borrow money at a low interest rate. Or because I'm afraid, you know, because I've had fear of, of any sort of overhead, you know, for the first 20 years of my studio, I just didn't want to have any debt, period. Like that was my deal, you know, mm -hmm. no debt. And as an, yep. an economist and a finance person, you better than anybody understand that that's not necessarily the right answer all the time. Final question, which is a little bit to the core of what I'm interested in with this interview show. Do you consider yourself a success? I, I think it's a work in progress. I think yes, on, on most fronts. I think that there are, I'm also very difficult to satisfy so I, I rarely will finish a project and think, oh, that project is all that it could have been. Like that pretty much never happens. On the whole, in terms of life and career and kind of living, yes, I feel very fortunate and I feel successful. I feel like I'm doing what I want to do. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I guess the short answer is, yeah, I feel, I do feel successful. I get that feeling of noticing the limitations and the failures more than the successes. And I also get that feeling of the perpetually dissatisfied. Yeah. But uh, for, the, for the little bit of this worth it from the, externally, I look at your career and I go, wow, Stuart Allen, that guy is succeeding. It's amazing. Well, that's really cool. Thank you. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I've been reading a lot and hearing a lot about negativity bias lately surrounding the media and personal decisions and even in terms of relationships, looking at my divorce and the new romantic relationships. And that negativity bias is really powerful stuff, man. You yeah. know, the general, the generally held theory is that it takes 
four to five positive things, whatever that thing is, to overcome one negative, right? And yeah. And and that's a really crappy ratio, you know. It's <laughs> really shocking. And and how does a very unfair thing our brains are doing to us, it, focusing on the negative? Right. I, I mean, it's so much easier to see the negative. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Uh, well, that's that's one of the things I'm inherently trying to explore with this show. So I appreciate you exploring this uh, with me, and I'm just really grateful for the conversation. Well, me too. It's been it's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Stuart. No Hill for a Climber is produced by Ryan Kyloth with editing help from Ben Henry and Dan Katz. If you like this episode, share it with a friend. I'm Michael Taylor. Talk to you next time.